Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold uh, part of that little sentence, and awfully glad that you are joining me today because we have a great show. I've been thinking about you all day, and here we are together. So I hope uh, I hope you enjoy what I have planned just for you. Uh, my first guest today is um, is Jonathan uh, Dotson. He wrote a book called Gospel Centered Discipleship 10 years ago, and he's revised it and updated it, and it's uh, it's a gem. And he says that real discipleship is imperfect, yet transformational. So he wants Christians to engage more authentically with others as they grow in faith. I think that's a wonderful idea. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much. Look yeah. forward to chatting. Yeah. Very cool that you had a chance to update the book. I suppose when you go back and you look at you know, what you wrote, uh, there must've been some things you wanted to change and tweak a little bit and maybe take out and then add in. Right. Yeah, certainly. You know, sometimes these updates, they look just, you just change a cover, but, <laughs> uh, I did get a new cover. It's uh, not green. It's red now, yeah, but uh, also I like added three new chapters and, um, revised a lot of it, updated it. Uh, one thing that was missing was a, a chapter on mentor discipleship. There's yes. a lot of talk about peer discipleship in the book, but I wanted to help people think about what does it mean to be a spiritual father or mother to younger brothers and sisters in the faith. So uh, I enjoyed writing that one. Well, I love that. And I think that's so important, uh, mentoring. Uh, Jonathan, you uh, talk about uh, three aspects of a disciple's identity. What are they? Yeah, well, uh, I use uh, three aspects that I take out of the Great Commission, um, and those are that a, a disciple is rational. Um, the gospel changes what we believe. Uh, a disciple is relational. It, it changes uh, who we live with or it changes our community. Um, and then it uh, it's um, rational, relational, missional. Um, it changes where we live, the, the people that we live next to, the cities or towns that we're in. So uh, it's kind of a holistic thing. It's not a just kind of go to church and then do what you want to do with your life. It, Jesus is Lord over all of our lives and invites us to follow him into those perhaps three aspects of what it means to be a disciple, rational, relational, and missional. I like that a lot. So I know there's plenty of people who are followers of Jesus, but they don't really feel qualified to make disciples, but that's what we're called to do. Maybe you've got a word of encouragement for those folks. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people feel like they have to be, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, or they have to be a certain age to make disciples. But uh, though understandable, though, those aren't any of the qualifications that Jesus had. You know, I mean, remember his ragtag group of disciples that right. he handpicked. <laughs> they weren't uh, well-educated ed- men. Uh, they weren't impressive. Um, uh, blue collar to white collar uh, and everything in between. So, uh, yeah, we can all make disciples. It reminds me of a woman in our church who um, we were talking about her neighbor. Her neighbor was a Hindu, and she felt so intimidated and, and unqualified to kind of connect with her and to try to disciple her. And um, I reminded her that, you know, you're not sent in the authority of your wisdom or 
the authority of your experience or the authority of your uh, apologetic answers. You're sent in the authority of Christ. That's what the Great Commission says, that Christ has all authority in heaven and earth given to me. Now, go make disciples. And so if we, if we kind of reframe uh, what authority we go under, not wisdom, mm. not eloquence, not experience or age, but we go, we go with Christ. And wherever we go, Christ goes. And we can tell people what Jesus has done for us. We can tell people who Jesus is and be honest about how he has changed our lives and how he can change others' lives. And, and that's very significant. Yeah. Jonathan Dodson's my guest. He's an author. who's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and he had a chance 10 years ago to write it, and now he has revised it and updated it and added several chapters. So it's a, it's a, a find for those interested in learning more about uh, being an effective disciple and how churches can implement this and apply it, because I think that's always a key. And I know people don't want to be discipled and have somebody apply methods or techniques. Uh, they want to be loved, but they also want to grow in their faith. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. I, I mean, all of us probably tend to put something else in the center of our discipleship other than the gospel. It's the, the book's gospel centered discipleship. A lot of us are rule centered, whether we know it or not. Some people like to keep the rules you know, uh, some people like to break the rules, keep the rules. If I do enough quiet times, if I say enough prayers, if I have good church attendance, or maybe if I'm very active in justice and mercy ministries or I'm evangelistic, you know, God will think well of me. I'll have his favor. Other people got, kind of break the rules. Uh, they, they don't uh, drive under that kind of impulse, but kind of uh, they're a king into themselves, a lord into themselves. Um, but they're still rule-centered. Mm -hmm. It's a keeping or breaking the rules begins to define who we are and a false sense of joy and freedom or shame and guilt come when we fail. And uh, of course, Jesus breaks the plates that we spend in all of these activities and says, I don't want you to be rule centered. I want you to be gospel centered. I fulfilled all the holy rules for you. So why don't you follow me and let me change you? And uh, that's just such a freeing way to go about following Jesus. Uh, to have the gospel at the center as opposed to rules at the center. The rules are important. The holy commands are significant. They they bring us joy and they shape our lives, but they aren't the motivation. The motivation um, is the gospel of grace. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Dodson's my guest. His book is Gospel-Centered Discipleship. Um, why would it be dangerous, Jonathan, to uh, rely on performance-driven discipleship? Well, it's kind of to follow on what we were talking about there. You yeah. know, performance, performance-driven discipleship um, is great when you're really killing it. You know, if you <laughs> if you're just yeah, if you're really disciplined, you know, right. you're, you're an early bird. You read the Bible every morning. You pray, uh, but then suffering comes, or life. Uh, you, maybe life. you get out of habits. Yeah, yeah, life. Yeah. life happens. That shows up. Kids, work, all the things, and uh, well, then suddenly your kind of self-worth, your spiritual identity plummets. Uh, you might uh, think less of yourself. Well, you know, you've attached your significance to your performance and uh, performance will praise you on your good days and mock you on your bad days. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we fail him, when we fail to obey him, he doesn't mock us. He dies for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he lays his life down for us. He says, come back with uh, open arms and love in his eyes. He says, I forgive you. And that, that forgiveness should sweeten us. Uh, like a good dessert, you know, you take a bite of that ice cream, another scoop, you just want another more. 
the more you tasted the sweetness of Christ's forgiveness, the more you want to come back and follow him. Yeah, so how many how many scoops do you stop at? I'm curious. <laughs> well, if it's gospel scoops, you can have okay. all you want. Oh, uh, yeah, or, or at least four, because there's four gospels. Yeah, okay, so uh, ten, 10 years, Jonathan, to, to revise your book. I know you've added three chapters. One is on the significance of mentoring. I think the uh, the book you started with was more peer-to-peer discipleship, and now you're wanting to talk more about mentoring. I'd love for you to expand on that. Yes, um, I did have to add uh, several chapters. One is on mentor discipleship. And um, it's it's so important that we have uh, older people in the faith, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily age older, but, but, but they've walked with Jesus longer. They, they've trusted and suffered longer than we have, and they have things to say to us. So, you know, I've had mentors pretty much since I left the house, and uh, they have spoken into my life. They've shaped my life. They've been examples of grace. They've been sources of wisdom. They've helped me make big decisions, and I'm so grateful but it's also helpful for, for those that are mentoring to see the vibrant faith of young people. You know, young people tend to take more risks. They tend to be more bold in their evangelism. Yeah. They tend to ask harder questions. And isn't, it, isn't this the design of God that the church is a family, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, enriching one another in the faith? So I wanted to kind of put that vision out there, uh, which comes right out of Scripture. I use Second uh, Thessalonians where Paul talks about himself as a mother a father, and a brother, and operates in those different roles. But isn't, isn't this the, the genius of God, that the church isn't a program or an event or even a service? It is, it is a family, and a family that's gathered around the grace and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan, of course, not everyone has a good definition of family uh, or a good experience with family. And I love that you talked about your mentors. Let me ask you, Jonathan, did you invite them in or did they invite themselves in to your life? A lot of times I, I invited them in. Um, you know, I just uh, I prayerfully uh, looked around, tried to find people that I respected, that I thought I might connect with. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there on occasions there have been some that have initiated with me. Um, sometimes people are a little hesitant to do that. But I mean... Every time someone has done that for me when I was younger, I so appreciated it. You know, even if it was just a lunch or a coffee and we didn't ever, ever meet again, there's such a blessing to be around people who say, I'm interested in you. Yeah. I want to encourage you in the faith. Yeah. You really can't go wrong with that. You no. know, I mean, it's just so, yeah, I've had both experiences. What I'm thinking about is uh, older uh, people seasoned in their faith, uh, full of a desire to mentor somebody they can't just walk around all day hoping somebody says, boy, you're a cool person. Would you mentor me? <laughs> you know, I don't think that's going to yeah. happen very often. So I love the invitation. I love saying, um, I'm not putting any time limit on this, but how about we meet for a coffee or a lunch? And uh, I yeah. would love to hear your story where you're at in your faith journey. Um, and maybe that's a good way to start a, a mentoring discipleship relationship. Absolutely. You know, and there's different types of mentors. Sometimes people get hung up on a certain idea. They've got to be a certain person, and they don't really see themselves like that. So it's helpful to kind of think about who you are and how God has made you to mentor. So there's mentors that are like coaches, and they kind of operate in the encouragement area. They, mm-hmm. When they meet with people, they give lots of encouragement. Uh, they listen. Then there's more like spiritual guides. They're not coaches. They're kind of uh, spiritual guides or directors, 
you know, they want to get into the deep kind of, uh, you know, uh, difficulties of your soul, sin struggles, things like that. Um, you know, so, so there's different types of mentors and it's okay to kind of stop and kind of think about, okay, who am I? You don't have to be somebody you're not, but to, to, to be intentional, like you're talking about and to move towards others, uh, it, with, with grace and with, the with your life and, um, and to listen, to listen to what people are going through. It means so much. Indeed it does. Jonathan, uh, Dodson is my guest. He's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and it's all updated and revised. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to ask him about the characteristics of a healthy accountability group or a, a healthy relationship. We'll talk about that with Jonathan when we come back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Are you glad it's Friday? I hope you are glad. I'm glad. I love Mondays. So uh, Monday coming up with a week from, let's see, is it two weeks? We start our our, our fall fundraiser. We do. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be awesome. We it's, love it's it. a big family reunion, and it's always great to hear stories of what God's doing in your life. And then we hear stories of incredible generosity. We hear stories of of what people's visions are for their personal life and for how they can contribute and be part of the fundraiser here. It's it's awesome. It, it is awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. And I will say uh, there's a lot of people that have this idea that, you know, I'd like to maybe um, make a donation, but I also want that money to be earmarked for uh, a match because that's happened quite a bit. And it's been very satisfying because usually the matches always get met. They do. Mm-hmm. And we have some amazing, generous people, but it's just... It kind of puts wind in everybody's sails. It it's really fun to it's know that fun. your money's doubled. It's fun. We're talking about gospel-centered discipleship with uh, Jonathan Dotson. He's written a book, and he had it revised and updated. He did it, the work himself, I, which I would expect him to do the work himself. But I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk, Jonathan, about um, healthy accountability groups or, or healthy discipleship relationships. What should they look like and smell like? Yeah. Well, maybe I'd talk about what they shouldn't and then what they should. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, uh, you know, I can remember being in college, being in an accountability group, and uh, when we got together, uh, there was a list of eight questions, and uh, they are penetrating questions, some of them very good. You know, um, have you looked at sexually explicit material? Have you been generous with your finances? Uh, you go through the list, and the last question would be, have you lied on any of the questions above? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, that there was no gospel, there was no grace, it was all performance and morality. And while those morals are good, if you if you failed on those, you just felt like a complete misery of a person by the end of the accountability time. I mean, yes, we pray for one another, but there was no gospel of grace kind of motivating that holiness, that, that aim for holiness. So <clears throat> I, I prefer not to, to have relationships based on that. Uh, we tend to do kind of text theology live. So we get together, uh, chit-chat, and then we open the scriptures together, and we look at the text, and we say, what does it What does it mean? What is it saying? And as we read that, we look for theology. What is it telling us about God, his character, his heart, his nature, 
his work. And then as we're moved by God, we talk about life. Where am I struggling? Uh, you know, how might this picture of God, this promise of God address a sin struggle or a suffering or a difficulty in my life? And as we do that together, text theology life, what becomes central is not the, the rules, but the, the presence of God in the scriptures uh, through the character uh, of Christ often manifested in the text. And so that, that's so transformational and so endearing. So it keeps the kind of importance of holiness, but it's driven by a kind of vision of who God is in the scriptures. And uh, they've been life-giving to me, and I won't ever stop doing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really helpful, Jonathan. M- let me ask you about uh, what are disciples of Jesus called to fight for? And, and how does this kind of faith-filled fighting differ f- from other types of fighting? Well, yeah, I have a, a chapter on that in the book where we kind of ask that question. And the, the short answer, I think, is 2 Corinthians 3 that we, or Romans 8, that we're to be conformed to the image of his son. So the goal of discipleship isn't morality or justice or evangelistic notches on the belt. The goal is Christ, to, to know Christ, to enjoy Christ, and to resemble Christ. It's, it's the very image and presence of Christ. So that's that's the goal of discipleship. And I think you had a part two to your question there. Um, what, well, I, and I've forgotten that. That's okay. Uh, I mean, the question was, you know, how does this kind of faith-filled fighting different from other kinds of, you know, combat or fighting? Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody fights, you know. We all fight. You know, some people fight for to look look good, you know. So when I walk out the door, I want I lost to that fight. Me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, some people fight um, in order to have an impressive career. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, you know, fight to be, um, you know, praised for their success, or um, you know, so we, or, or or to to be successful on the field. You know, we we all kind of fight for the things that are most valuable to us. And so I think the challenge is to rec- to be honest. <laughs> about our tendencies to fight for other things and to consider what would it look like to expend energy on fighting for the ultimate thing for intimacy and, and, and love the intimacy and lovingness of Christ to, to know him, to reflect him, to enjoy him. Uh, That reward won't let us down. That reward won't cease to satisfy. Unlike the fights for age, for athleticism and success, Mm -hmm. those things come and go, but the beauty of Christ only becomes dearer and sweeter. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Dodson is my guest. He's written a book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship, and he's been uh, revising it and busy updating it and adding chapters. And it was first published 10 years ago. So um, I, I would love to, uh, Jonathan, have you talk about the, the correct mindset that Christians should have towards repentance. Mm. Well, it, it often comes across as a bad word. You know, we often confuse it with penance. Like, what do I have to do? I'm on God's bad side because I sinned. And so what do I have to do to get on God's good side? But repentance is, is not, re- repentance is realizing you're already on God's good side because of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just simply turning away from whatever sin was appealing to you and turning to Christ. It's a, a, a single movement, a, a, a redirecting of our heart's glance uh, towards the, the one being that is truly satisfying, that's truly for us, um, and that is truly uh, great. 
And so re- repentance is really good news. It's, it's remembering who we are in Christ. Sin is kind of a momentary insanity. You know, you, you um, let's say you gossip about someone and you're convicted about it. You don't need to kind of, you know, uh, grovel because you, you have failed. You, you turn to Christ. You say, I've, I've gossiped about others because I wanted to feel important. And would you forgive me and remind my heart that, that I'm important because of your love? Mm-hmm. You know, to to be to turn with whatever that thing we're looking for in sin to bring it back to Christ and seek forgiveness, but also to find replacement. Uh, Jesus always beats the the false promises of sin with a better promise. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of repentance is always good news because you're waking up to the the beauty, the goodness, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Jonathan K. Dodson, and if I was a a county fair worker, I would say Kenneth. <laughs> would I be right? It's Karsten. Car- See, you'd you'd walk away with the oversized comb. <laughs> I'll take it. And by the looks of your hair, uh, you need it. So, uh, you know, we only have a few more minutes, Jonathan, but I'd love to talk about, uh, this is, a, I think, an important topic, how believers can integrate the Holy Spirit into their decision-making on an everyday basis. How do we do that and how do we do it better? And how do we have the Holy Spirit working his way into every decision we make? Yeah, this is probably my favorite chapter in the book. This, the Spirit is the, is the engine behind the gospel. It gives us belief in the gospel. And we don't have to earn his presence. It's always eternally with us. And, but often we kind of snub him. Uh, we neglect him. Um, it's kind of the neglected person, third person of the Trinity. And so, you know, you might have a decision you're going to make, um, and you might just kind of bounce decisions around. You might have a temptation come your way. You know, should I, uh, should I lust? Should I be angry? Should I gossip? And and you kind of just we get into these kind of uh, rational discussions, these interior dialogues, where we kind of weigh the pros and cons and we make a decision. But in those moments, the moment of temptation, the moment of opportunity to obey, often there is a nudge to do one thing, to turn away from temptation or to make a particular decision. And very often that's the Holy Spirit. And if it's about holiness and obedience, it's always the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So it's not our enlightened moral reasoning that's nudging us to do the dishes or to share the gospel or to uh, be be kind and gracious and not angry. That is the third person of the Trinity prompting us. So I think it begins with recognizing his voice and and re- realizing, you know, this is not a kind of dialogue with my moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. This is the spirit moving me towards Christ likeness. So <clears throat> I think that, that that's kind of the first step yeah. uh, in doing that. And there's a point in my life where I just realized I'd been doing this for so long that I needed to repent of just kind of neglecting yeah. the Holy Spirit. And that was a real kind of watershed time for me in which I began to get to know the spirit more intimate. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with me today. I've enjoyed meeting you and talking about your book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, Jonathan Dodson. Thank you so much and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill. Thanks you for bet. the great question. You bet. You know, you're welcome. You want to receive a daily email featuring a nice scripture graphic. You can sign up for the verse of the day email also at myfaithradio.com. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Welcome to the show. How about a, a rallying reminder that believers uh, must have the courage to proclaim Scripture's truth in a culture in desperate need of only what God can offer. We're going to talk about uh, that uh, to Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's written a brand new book called No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Dr. Lutzer, welcome. I'm so glad to be with you, Bill. And uh, yes, we're going to talk about issues that people confront every day. Yep. And I don't know if you heard any of the previous show. I figured that you listen to me every day. Uh, but in the event you didn't, I was quoting you in the last half hour. I'm sorry I was not listening <laughs> to you. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, your book is so interesting. I have to say, uh, when I started it and I thought, ooh, I can't wait for uh, Dr. Lutzer to talk about clapping. Yes. That is fascinating. Yeah, actually, the story is that a speech was given on behalf of Stalin, and people stood up and clapped for 11 minutes. And finally, the director of a paper factory sat down. Everybody was glad. That meant they could all sit down. That night, according to Solzhenitsyn, he was tried, thrown in jail, and told, don't ever be the first one to stop clapping. So how does freedom die? With thunderous applause. Everybody clap, please. Wow. (laughs) So we are pretty much told in this woke culture that if you hear something, you better start clapping for it or else we, we might cancel you. Exactly. There are two ways that we are being Sovietized. Number one is people are no longer promoted based on their ability or even their loyalty to a company in the past, but whether or not they are in line with woke culture. So it used to be if you apply for a job in chemistry, if you're a good chemist, you could get the job. But nowadays, you'll also be asked, are you comfortable with multiple pronouns? Are you on board with the LGBTQ agenda? So no longer is it sufficient to simply serve people. I tell the story of an attorney that I met who said that she was representing two women who were fired from their job because they wouldn't wear a, a BLM um, insignia on their clothes and a rainbow so it's not enough to serve you have to be in line with the culture the second way is that uh, in the soviet union of course truth and the media fused with the government agenda and we certainly know all about that today in terms of our canceled culture where only certain ideas are permitted to uh, be spread throughout the culture. So here we are, and uh, what we have to do is to clap. So everybody's asking, am I woke enough to be seen as virtuous? Am I woke enough to be able to keep my job and to be able to keep on going? Mm -hmm. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is my guest. His book is called No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, and it is a a page-turner, Dr. Lutzer. I, I so enjoyed it. And one of the things I read in the last half hour, and I will, I'll bring it up again because it involves big tech and how we are being censored on platforms all the time. 
And now a lot of young people are getting their news exclusively online from Facebook and, and other social media platforms. But anyway, the line was that the, the Ayatollahs from Iran can still, they're still not censored. China's not censored. Pornography flows. But if you make a political or, a, uh, uh, or even a medical uh, decision or opinion, which with the elites disagree, you're, the, the, dele- the uh, tweets get deleted. So the rule well, is simple, you say. Amplify the voices we agree with and silence those with whom we disagree, and we get to decide who speaks and who doesn't. Well, today I was on with someone, I won't mention his name, but he was interviewing me, and he's been banned from YouTube. So unless you go along with the issues uh, that are generally believed in the culture regarding the vaccines, regarding covid regarding certain issues regarding um, social justice, you can be canceled. And um, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad that you read the book. And uh, I believe very deeply that one of the things that God has asked me to do is to help Christians to think clearly about these issues, but also what our response should be. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Lutzer, in, in the book, No Reason to Hide, um, and just in, in all uh, transparency, I didn't finish the entire book, but I got through a lot of it. Um, and you say that collective demonization is the norm in all total- totalitarian regimes. So in Nazi Germany, churches flew swastikas from above their steeples and tacked them on their church doors, saying, in effect, when you come for the Christians, don't come for us. We're on your side. Exactly, and that's what woke washing is among businesses today, is where they are expected to go along with the culture and, um, you know, to be able to wave the flag and to say that we are on the side of progress, we are on the side of the progressives, we are on the side of the left. You know, speaking about that also, not just when it comes to such issues as censorship, But you'll notice in the book I have two chapters on race. One is on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what I try to show there, Bill, is that this actually, even though it's well-meaning, it actually goes against all possibility of moving forward in race relations because it divides, it causes us to see one another in oppositional terms, and as a result... Our society is being torn apart rather than being uh, brought together. And uh, how wonderful it is that the Bible actually has the answer to all of this wrangling and shouting back and forth. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Lutzer, it's so interesting the way the words evolved, phrases evolved. Even in uh, white supremacy, I would love for you to talk about how that has changed. Yeah, well, you know, white supremacy, as traditionally defined, should be condemned. Amen. It is wrong. It is, of course, thinking that your culture is best, and therefore your culture should rule uh, based on your skin color. The problem is, without getting into the controversy regarding January 6th, I point out that now that that has happened... White supremacists are everywhere. If you honor the flag, you're a white supremacist. 
If you believe in uh, creation, you're a white supremacist. If you believe in traditional values, even I show that if you believe in the nuclear family, you are considered to be a white mm-hmm. supremacist. It's amazing. And, and then later on, in that book on um, issues regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion, of all things, I show that in Princeton... There's a math teacher who is going against the culture because they have imposed the idea that if you believe that mathematics has only one right answer, that is white supremacy, and you are, I'm sure, a racist. And so he's arguing, this professor from Romania is arguing profusely that um, this is, in effect, insanity. Mm -hmm. He says that in Romania, he respected the communists more, who at least believed that two plus two is equal to four. So what you have is social justice being applied across the board. Now, just think of this. Princeton graduates open a new bank in your community, and, uh, you know, you put in money, and you go to withdraw it, and they say, well, there isn't just one right answer. Uh, that's white supremacy. Uh, there are several different answers. So you have one answer as to how much money you have in the bank, and they have a different one. Now, I quote uh, Orwell, who is quoted as saying that there are some ideas that are so absurd that only intellectuals can believe them. So, you know, uh, while I'm on the topic regarding George Orwell, he has a story in which Winston is taken into a room And he's taught that 2 plus 2 is equal to 5, it's also equal to 3, sometimes it's equal to both. I've thought about that, and the real reason is not that they think that they convince him, but that he might learn to live by lies. Mm -hmm. Just live with a lie. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it is in transgenderism. I have a chapter there to try to help parents think through, what do you say to your child if he comes home and says, I'm trans? Well, they want us to live by lies. Everybody knows that men can't have babies, too. Everybody knows that, but they want us to live by lies. They want us to believe that two plus two is five. And that's the nation in which we believe. And by the way, Voltaire, for all of his faults, and they were many, said that if they can get you to believe absurdities, eventually they can get you to commit atrocities. So that's the way we are in the culture, and the church and individuals need to stand against it and say we will not submit. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point, Dr. Lutzer. Um, Dr. Erwin Lutzer is my guest. No reason to hide standing for Christ in a collapsing culture. And in one of your chapters, uh, you talk about will we be deceived by the language used by the propagandists but before I get to that, uh, Dr. Luther, I was, I was thinking of Nazi Germany, where at some point people agreed to do the Heil Hitler thing. They didn't go, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. Somebody agreed to do it, and then other people started doing it, and then it wasn't an option anymore. Well, if you go back to the beginning of our conversation, that's what clapping for Stalin was. Exactly. Exactly. And the problem is that if you didn't, you could lose your business. You, you know, so these are serious matters. You either go along with the culture or you don't. 
But you raised one of the most interesting chapters. I think it's chapter six in my book. It is chapter six. That came out available September 6, 2022. Yeah. Talk about timing. The Bill Arnold Show. Talk about chapter six where I discuss the issue of, uh, the issue, of course, of uh, propaganda. Yeah. Hitler, well, one of the things that propaganda, first of all, in the larger picture, the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that even when confronted with a mountain of evidence, they will not change their mind. In the best kind of propaganda, people are misled without even knowing it. And Hitler, for example, you camouflage what you want to do. When he starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. Killing the Jews was the cleansing of the land. Now, the reason that this becomes important is Gable said, all propaganda must have emotion either anger or fear, and you need to stir up the masses so that facts no longer matter. Mm-hmm. In that chapter, I have six different ways that language is used in propaganda. Let me give you, I think it's number two. One of the universities, and I quote the name in the book, has a speech code that they published. You're not supposed to use the word fireman, policeman, You're not supposed to use the word victim, and it goes on. And if there's a barbershop in your community, don't say that he takes walk-ins because you might offend those who can't walk. There are those who are in wheelchairs Mm -hmm. now. Now, let's just back off and ask ourselves, Bill, what in the world is going on here? The purpose of that is not to elevate the conversation, It's intended to silence the conversation so that you have no idea what is right. Can you go into a restaurant and still ask for a menu? Nobody (laughs) knows. Nobody knows. Maybe you should ask for a woman you, too. Yeah. The point is, this is why university students self-censor themselves. They have no idea what is appropriate. They're afraid of saying a straightforward sentence. And that's the whole point. It is to narrow the realm of speech so that in return you narrow the realm of thought. And that's just one way that language is used in propaganda, and I illustrate that in the book. Mm -hmm. And you do it very well. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is my guest. His brand new book is called No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. And it is a great book. I'll take a short break and be back with Dr. Lutzer in just a minute. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and I'm awfully glad to be celebrating the... um, 
arrival of his brand new book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Dr. Lutzer, let's talk about if we will compromise with the Christian left. Um, I mean, how does an evangelical church go woke? Well, that's interesting in two different ways. First of all, it buys into social justice, which is defined according to the world. Now, the Bible commands us to be involved in justice issues. What does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice? But social justice is entirely different. Social justice involves a whole constellation of ideas regarding gender theory. It may include queer theory. It may include socialism, economic equality, and all the rest. And so churches buy into this because it sounds good. Remember, Bill, ideas don't have to work in order to survive. They only have to sound good. So, (laughs) Uh So what you have is this. And I tell the story of a church that was unified, but after the death of George Floyd, the church, in effect, broke apart because of the whole justice, uh, social justice theories, which began to pit one skin color against another. So that's one way the left can go woke. I mean, even evangelical churches. Secondly, has to do with issues of sexuality. So because of love, there are those who uh, accept same-sex marriage, etc. I point out that love can be evil. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love the wrong things, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of uh, evil. So, you know, people think that love, love is love. Well, yeah, love is love. But biblical love is well-defined. Getting back to social justice for just a moment, there's a verse in Isaiah 59, I think it's verse 11 or 12, that says this, Justice is turned away, and righteousness stands afar off, because truth has stumbled in the public square. When it comes to issues of justice, they have to be based on biblical views of justice and truth, a biblical worldview. When it comes to matters of sexuality, everybody uses the word just. There's social justice, there's environmental justice, and they do that because it's a perfectly good word, but um, nobody wants to be standing in the way of justice, so pressure is put upon us to accept that kind of terminology, including also the word equality. I think I discussed this in the same chapter when we're talking about um, how language is used. But that's the way it's used, and that's how a church can go woke. Mm -hmm. They may mean well, but they end up with unbiblical ideas. And social justice, as it is generally used today in society, is not the gospel. We have to shout that from the housetops. Yeah. Dr. Lutzer, when you're driving down the street, you pass a small church or a medium-sized church, and there's a rainbow flag out front and the big sign that says, uh, we all are welcome here. What do you think? Well, first of all, I like the phrase that says, all are welcome here. But, of course, they're trying to convey an idea, namely that if you come to this church, you will be... Uh, affirmed, even in same-sex relations, 
no matter what kind of a sexual identity you have and that you live out. And that, of course, is entirely wrong. I know that uh, there are those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We have to be able to help them. But for those who are involved in uh, that kind of sexuality, the Bible is incredibly clear. I don't have to quote here Romans chapter 1 and, of course, passages in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, etc. Now, what's important to know is this. You say, yes, but everybody believes it. In the book, I quote uh, Booker T. Washington, who said, evil doesn't become good, wrong doesn't become right, just because the majority believe it to be so. And that's why I wrote the book, namely uh, the one that we're referring to here, No Reason to Hide. I wrote it so that we might know what is happening in our society and what it is that we have to stand against. The subtitle Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Mm-hmm. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is my guest, and his book is No Reason to Hide. And uh, Dr. Lutzer, in your book in Chapter 8, you you quote Henry Blackaby, and I like Henry Blackaby, and he said, you know, he, he says, do you not already hear the warnings of God? Do you not see that the enemy is coming in like a flood? God is trying to raise up a standard against us. I mean, there is talk now of trying to live... Uh, the fiction of living in a gender-neutral society. How do we oppose that? I wrote that chapter to help parents to um, talk to their kids, as well as the one on children, the next chapter, uh, when they come home and say that they are transgender. How do we reply to that? Very briefly, let us remember that self-perception is not necessarily a reliable guide as to who we are. You can go into a psych ward and find somebody who absolutely, totally believes he is Napoleon, but he might not, excuse me, he might not be right. In fact, we know he won't be. You know, there are young women who struggle with anorexia. They look in the mirror and see themselves as overweight. Mm -hmm. They really do, but they're starving themselves. Mm -hmm. Should we say to them, well, only you know who you really are, and therefore, you must, uh, we must accept you because, uh, as to who you are because we, we have to give you your autonomy and only you know who you really are. And if, so, if a boy says, I'm a girl, he is confused. And we don't help him by going along with that confusion. I don't mention this in the book, but Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, He, on Father's Day, accepts um, flowers from one of his biological daughters. He said that he accepts it because they say that he is their father, and he says, I am their father. Okay. When did he become a woman? Did he father a child when he was a woman? This becomes so absurd that it's unbelievable. It goes back to what I said earlier about 2 plus 2 is equal to 5. And we must help people to think through how to counteract this in society because it is an ultimate fist against God. Gender neutrality. I talked there about a wedding, you know, here comes the broom. The word broom is a a synthesis of bride and groom Mm -hmm. because we don't want any gender in our wedding. 
this guy says. Okay. What kind of confusion are we bringing about? And young people, this should make us weep. Girls are having mastectomies. Boys are being castrated, if I might say that. And they're doing it because they're told they are trans. And why do they say that? Think of it for a moment. You go to school. You're shown pornography. You are told that all this is normal. You're attracted in one sense, but you're also filled with shame. Shame eventually produces depression. Depression makes you feel hollow and empty. And somebody comes along and says, oh, you know the way you feel the way you do? You must be trans. Mm -hmm. You were born Bert. Become Bertha. Mm -hmm. And if you become Bertha, you're going to find all this happiness. Meanwhile, you're ruining your future. If you begin with the surgery, you end up unable to become a biological parent. Yeah. But nonetheless, this is what is being sold to our culture and parents. God is going to hold you accountable for the way in which your children are educated. Ouch. And there is going to be this position that the trans student will take and they will say, I'm willing to talk to you, but don't you dare try to change my mind. So I, I always think that's that's what I think they're conditioned from hearing messages on the Internet. Yeah, and, um, you know, if we can't change their minds, we can't change their minds. We just have to love them. Yeah. Tell them about Jesus who Amen. died for broken people. You know, Jesus said, those of you who are weary and heavy laden come to me for rest. We can't change human nature. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to be changed, but... We can lovingly pray for them and help them to try to see. And there may come a point at which they are willing to discuss the issue and see the truth. Thank you, Dr. Lutzer. It's been a delight having you on. Thank you, Bill. God bless. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.